Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Published or Not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by... David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR. Published or not, every Thursday, 11.30 till noon. When you get home, baby, me a few your lines. <laughs> Good morning, Jan. You nearly forgot to turn on the microphones. Uh, Never yes. do that. Oh. People wouldn't be able to hear us if you did and that. And they need to hear us because we've got two authors today. We've got two authors, but I've got two announcements, actually. Two? Before two, there's the listener survey. We've got to make sure that uh, our listeners fill out that survey and let because us know what you think of it. It's been extended, hasn't it, until the 5th of May, 5th which of is May. tomorrow. Oh, very so important. So haven't got very much time. And a word to the wise about what's coming up in the future. Radiothon. Oh, we're looking forward to that. 5th to the 18th of June, and that's where 3CR needs your support. Every program has a target to fill, mm-hmm. and uh, that enables us to continue. So we'll be uh, having a time... I'm sure all our listeners will be really oh, keen yes. to listen to all indeed, of those words indeed, indeed. in the future. But what? back to business. You've got an author, Jan. <laughs> So have you, but I'm starting first. Go for it. Some words still have gender biasing. If you talk about a woman being a princess, do you get that picture of a pampered girl? But if you talk about a male being a prince among men, it's a very different vibe. And that's the essence of the Turak Jackpot by Rosemary McIndoe. Welcome, Rosemary. Thank you, Jan. Now, Bert Smith. He's your main man, main character. He certainly has his ups and downs. What is it that he's won and lost at the beginning of the book? Well, Bert is a shoe salesman working for Ping Pong Shoes in Melbourne and he uh, gets the Best Shoe Man Salesman Award in Australia for his company and then he... Uh, comes home to discover his wife of 10 years, Gwendolyn, has left him for another man. So he wins the award but loses his wife and he's heartbroken. Well, but what he is pleased about, that Gwendolyn hasn't taken the cat. <laughs> That's right. He's left with Boo Boo, mm. who is his long, long lost lover, who he absolutely adores. He does love Boo Boo. And thankfully he does have a best friend, Neville Ponzi. Yeah, that's right, who he goes back to school days with and they stay friends throughout his trials and tribulations. The title of the book's called De Turak Jackpot and what comes into Bert Smith's life is a mystery benefactor. How did this mystery benefactor change Bert's life? Well, he he gives him a mystery inheritance in Clendon Road, Turak, of a beautiful house and a $10 million share portfolio. And <laughs> there's only a catch. He has to tell the world that he's a Turak prince. So here he is. He's moving in with the cat and his uh, <laughs> little belongings that don't quite fill the 30-roomed mansion. <laughs> um, he's living in Turak. He doesn't have to work. 
So he can spend a lot of time sitting around drinking coffee. And this is how he met the Bloom mother and daughter. That's right. Well, he's in Turak Village and he often goes to Romeo's, which of course is a real business in Turak Village running right now. Are they sponsoring this book? (laughs) No, no, they they get a lot of mentions through this book. (laughs) You should tell them to sponsor it. I've been in there and told them they're in the book, book, but... um, but uh, spends a lot of time in, in the cafes and he actually rescues Mrs Bloom from a heart attack with mm. um, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and uh, when she has a heart attack and he ends up meeting his, her beautiful daughter, Oh, yes, that he lusts after because there's no woman in his life apart from Boo Boo the cat. Well, uh, that put him on TV. Uh, so he's not only a Turak prince now, he's also a media star, but... That also, any any touch with the media often leaves a little bit of a, um, a, a problem. And he may have, be slurred as a homosexual or slurred, but, you know, he's sort of thinking, golly. <laughs> well, Bert is actually very uh, anti-gay in, in initially in the book because he feels it's not very macho and Australian to be gay. And he is an Aussie male through and through, and is very insulted at the suggestion he may be a homosexual in the closet. He does a lot of learning through this book, doesn't he? Anyway, uh, so what he has to do is learn how to shape his life as a prince. And he needs a role model. So he, he wonders just about who who that role model should be. So I'm going to get Rosemary McIndoe to read from her book um, from page 81. When I think of princes, I always think of the man I grew up with in the media. In a funny way, I almost feel as if I know Prince Charles. I've seen him on television so many times. I mean, no one could be a man of Prince Charles' standing. He's spent his whole life being a prince. He's got it down to a fine art. Have you seen the way he dresses? Have you seen the shoes he wears? Have you seen the way he turns up to events, always looking a million dollars? I've never seen Prince Charles in a pair of thongs or an old black T-shirt. Does he ever take a break from being a prince and looking good? I think not. Yeah, right. And, of course, what happens is, um, thinking about Prince Charles and his charity work, there's a knock on the door. It's a young girl. (laughs) And she's selling Girl Guide cookies. So he thinks, well, I should buy some of these. But she comes back later and actually asks for his help. That's right. She, her mother's in hospital and with leukaemia and he, she asks him to come and visit her and be a real prince, just like Prince Charles. So, But that also leads to being a little bit of a slur on him too. Yeah, it does. No, he, he ends up being insulted by the father of the daughter and ru- rushing for cover. Uh, yes, you know, pedophilia is something that you don't <laughs> like to be accused of. So... How should he shape his life as a prince? Now, this is another quote from the book. Politicians could be unofficial princes and princesses because they are at the top of society and have status. Well, mm, we are, we wonder about that. But uh, Bert has uh, he he in his own life has a soft spot for prime ministers. That's right. Well, he he moves into his luxury uh, mansion and he decides to have some goldfish. Um, named after all the Prime Ministers of Australia and uh, just for fun. And he, there, there is the theme of politics in the book because your life is a political act and 
Malcolm Turnbull is often referred to as the point piper prince in the media and he is at the top of society in Australia and is a very wealthy man and people think of him as being like a prince and being like Prince Charles on a certain level. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, getting back to Prince Charles and the the uh, charity work that he does, well, well, Bert actually starts doing this just because he's a nice guy. You know, he um, there's a burglar and that comes into the house and he ends up organising a proper job for him. And then there's an artist selling photocopies of his art on the footpath and Bert commissions him to do a painting which leads to a, a criti- critical acclaim among the in the art world. That's right. Well, Bert ends up finding that doing good deeds leads to more good deeds and his generosity opens doors for him in his life and he ends up um, sponsoring the Smith family, which of course is a real Australian charity based in Collingwood mm. and in Sydney. And, you know, he ends up working out the importance of generosity rather than just um, being incredibly wealthy. Yeah, yeah. What um, what I did think was interesting in this was your knowledge about the art world and also the illustrations through the book. So yes. as well as a writer, you're an artist. Yes, that's right. I've had three solo shows and I've been hung in the Portuguese Portrait Prize in Sydney with a portrait of Dame Elizabeth Murdoch. And um, What are the illustrations you've done in the book? Well, they're of shoes, which is the theme of the book. And um, Well, we know that Bert doesn't know a lot about art, but he can tell a lot about a person from the shoes that they're wearing. Yes, and I think you can do that. I once met a solicitor in Melbourne who had an Italian language class who, and I could tell immediately from his shoes he was a solicitor because they were identical to my father's. Who, which were handmade shoes. I could tell immediately he was a solicitor oh. from his shoes. And, oh, um, wow. You know, shoes tell a lot about you, say a lot about you. Well, the person we don't know much about is Louis Goldberg. That's Ex- right. Except all we know about him is he lives in Turak, he's a neighbour of Bert's. Why does Bert tell him jokes? Well, Louis Goldberg has lost his sense of humour since his son died who committed suicide and um, he's looking for it and Bert tries to make him laugh. Because, as Louis says, a man's got to be able to laugh in order to enjoy life. Well, we get the ups and downs. We won't sort of say just who, why. Poor old Bert Smith won all this money. He may lose it and who and may find out who the benefactor is. And if he did, he'd be looking for another job. And this is, this is something I think that will relate to so many people. This is from page 131. So Bert went out and got a job as a telemarketer. He loved it. He loved ringing up people and annoying them and selling them solar energy. He was so pleased to be back in the game, even if he was starting at the bottom all over again. <laughs> so Bert went out as a telemarketer for solar en- energy. Look, this is, this is one of the laughs in the book. And um, Rosemary McIndoe, you've told me that you're entering this book into uh, a, a, a prize I've never heard about. Yes, it's the Russell Prize for Humorous Writing in Sydney, which is a biannual prize where you have to write uh, 42,000 words or more. And um, it's it, it's about to be announced who the finalists are, and oh, I'm just yeah. hoping very desperately I make the final cut. 
Well, the last word should go to Bert, I think, from this book via Rosemary McIndoe. A man doesn't need to laugh all the time. Just smile at the absurdity of existence. (laughs) (laughs) So this book, written by Rosemary McIndoe, is called The Turak Jackpot. There we go. I was wondering what... uh it said about me when I used to wear Dunlop volleys with holes in them. I mean, what sort of character was I? That's, sorry about that. I've got better shoes on today. Thank you. Now, everyone's looking at my feet. Anyway, I will progress with my interview. Fable and folklore are intrinsic parts of any society. We find many of these stories are integrated in Rebecca Rosengrave's novel Gumtree Gargoyles. So Rebecca, welcome to 3CR. Hi, thanks for having me. Gargoyles. Yeah. And now, I mean, we've got lots of shows about uh, and, and such like. What's the fascination with gargoyles? You know, I think there's there's such an appetite for, for fantasy at the moment in popular culture, but there seems to be a very strong emphasis on on vampires and werewolves. And, you know, I'm just I'm taking it down a different path. I'm doing something a little bit different. But you, you must have done a lot of research uh, into the myths and folklores of different societies yeah. because you've sort of accumulated a lot of uh, stories from different cultures here. Yeah, I have. And in a way, even though it's it's a, a story that is fantasy, it's definitely, I think, reflected reflective of uh, multicultural aspects in, you know, everyday real, real society. Well, before we get on to the, the, the story itself, I yeah. mean, just touching on some of these myths and folklores. Yeah. I mean, for example, gargoyles are sort yeah. of intrinsic to Western society. Yeah. Um, I had to sort of wonder where it all began. Are you familiar with yeah i am so it's it, it originates from france mm. and there is there is a um a, a fable attached to it and it's tied into the church and it's tied into dragon slaying and and you know i can't for the life of me remember the name of the french king but um his his knight slayed this dragon and he put the dragon's head on a post and propped it atop this king's um, I get castle, castle slash church, and that's, that's where it originated from. It was this dragon's head was a symbol of, of protection, and that's what gargoyles are when they're on churches and on buildings. They're, they're there to protect from evil spirits. The other thing I found um, appeals to my background as an English teacher, mm. and I don't quite know how to pr- pronounce the French. Uh, gargoyle? Gargoyle? Mm. Yeah. which means throat, mm-hmm. uh, or the Latin gargula. Uh, Gullet, yeah. And so the sound of it in mm-hmm. some ways um, sort of uh, is onomatopoeic uh, to a certain extent, the gargling, yeah. which is because they were used as throats on mm-hmm. the architecture for, to yeah. get, release the water. Yes, yeah, and, guttering, yeah. And, and the water would yeah. be, be spurting out. Yeah. But then the Catholic Church co-opted a lot of this as a symbolism mm-hmm. uh, to illustrate the sort of evil that was that was possible mm-hmm. and on the outside of churches, and it was it's a fascinating sort of it is uh, cultural. Um, how would you call it? Um, a, a co-option uh, of of something, but it it's, goes throughout history. Mm-hmm. But you've, as I said, you've touched on the folklore of numerous cultures and yeah. here's just some selkies yeah. yes selkies forget mermaids forget mermaids. yeah forget mermaids we'll come but, to mermaids shortly yeah. but sel- tell us selkies. about selkies selkies you know it's half woman half seal 
Um, originates from like Scotland, the Icelandic area, Scandinavia, and so a lot of these uh, myths are, are transferring between cultures and lands. Absolutely, as, as they go. And um, Nian's was something I wasn't aware of, mm-hmm. and that's Chinese. Yes. Yeah, so again, just I did a lot of research into into different uh, countries' uh, folklore and fables, and you know, it's there's such a rich, rich, rich. Um, but what, what? But what are neons? Uh, neons, so spirits, spirits. Um, well, a beast uh, that can be either in the sea or the mountains. Yeah. So I found that a bit strange. Yeah. But the body of a bull and a head of a lion yeah. uh, was there. You've also appealed to Maori culture. Did yeah. I get the pronunciation Tanawa? right? Tanawa. Tanawa. Yeah. Um, and they're beings that live in deep pools and stuff. They like. are. And they're, they're essentially, you know, all over the Kiwi, um, like souvenirs. You know, the little creatures that are often carved into the bone and stone. And right. Yeah, so that's a... The, um, the green stone that they have. Yeah. Um, well, gins is an obvious one. Yeah. Um, and... Middle I mean, Eastern. Middle Eastern. Northern African, and yeah. And we've anglicised that into genies yeah. uh, and such like. Mm-hmm. I guess we should put in a plug for Aladdin, which is a show going on, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. picks up on that. Yeah. What I didn't know, jinns yeah. uh, are actually mentioned in the Quran. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I, I've travelled extensively throughout the Middle East and there there is still a very strong belief in in these desert spirits. And, well, that sort of then is a bit of an anachronism, I would have thought, within mm. a religious text, then to have this sort of... Mythology, yeah, as well. yeah. I mean, why does society? Well, yeah. it, it sort of gets onto a, a, a broader question mm-hmm. of the necessity within society yeah. for those sorts of myths and beliefs. Definitely. I mean, um, finding an explanation for that, people need those sorts of beliefs. They do, and I think it just it just goes to show how um, how black and white we have become as not just as a society or as you know various cultures as a world like if we have to be able to explain everything like in a solid context and black and white but but then we perhaps, pick something that's completely but abstract perhaps perhaps you know there is there perhaps there's a world that we're unaware of i mean these these ideas they originated from somewhere and i think that's a strong theme through my book nothing comes from nowhere but every society has developed such beliefs yeah. and such like. Yeah, um, absolutely. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy, shall we say that. <laughs> but you have gum tree gargoyles. Yes. Now, what are, where, what are they? Who are they? How are they? So, I, it, it ties into colonisation and the Europeans coming out to this land. So the gargoyles also came out to this land. And so they are the Australian gargoyle. But they're, they're not quite... Acceptable. I mean, uh, lots of early Australians would have felt this, that, you know, the new lads, etc. We, we weren't quite British. What's, exactly. What, what's, what's the problem for these gum tree gargoyles? Well, uh, you know, they've had to adapt to a new, to a new land. They've had to integrate uh, with the local, the indigenous mystics. And so, so their methods have, have changed over the years. And because they've changed, they've become different. And, of course, the, the motherland, the, the European gargoyles, look down on them as sort of the poor cousins. Lots of Australians would identify with that, (laughs) the tyranny of distance and the like. Um, But 
this sort of leads into the story, mm. uh, basically. Katie has inherited the responsibility of controlling uh, the mythic world in many yeah, ways. She's a guardianship. A but a, mm-hmm. a guardianship there because the, her father has passed away. She's mm-hmm. inherited it. Mm-hmm. Things start to unravel. Mm-hmm. And we've got a couple of problems uh, in Canberra. We were thinking of jokes about uh, politicians before. Uh, something <laughs> is sucking the lifeblood out of people in Canberra. <laughs> I think they're called politicians. Yeah. But, but that wasn't the point you were making. Wrong uh, monster. Wrong monster. Wrong monster. <laughs> um, monsters all the same. Yeah. Um, but also, not so there's that in Canberra. But mm-hmm. also, you've, you've incorporated the eight. HMAS Canberra. I have, which yeah. is basically the flagship of the uh, RAN. Yes, that's right. I've I've um, I've integrated a lot of real time themes and real time aspects, but cloaked them in a with fantasy, essentially. So the story follows Katie's first week as guardian to the Australian Capital Territory. So the the story itself focuses on a sub political mystical regime and Katie as guardian to the Australian Capital Territory has to quell all the mystic uprisings and maintain the human status quo. So the mystic world is sort of in conflict with itself rather than not necessarily with uh, the, the mortal yeah, realm. well, in conflict with itself, in conflict with the mortal realm, mm. it's 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 confused. So the attack on HMAS Canberra yeah. sort of goes back to uh, Greek mythology and sirens. It does ab- about to lure uh, these uh, the seamen yeah. <laughs> into the ship and mermaids yeah. uh, and such like. She's able to. Uh, st- uh, stifle that. Mm-hmm. We won't give away the uh, how she or who is sucking the lifeblood no. uh, out of people in Canberra, but she's mm-hmm. got to deal with that as yeah, well. Yeah, um, she does. But this then leads into Australian mythology, and this yeah. is perhaps um, probably even more fascinating. Uh, and you're going to have to correct my pronunciation. Yaramayaha? Yeah, Yaramayaha. Yeah, Yaramayahu. Yaramayahu. Mm. And who and what are the Yaramayahu? Who is the Yaramayahu? <laughs> it is the Indigenous boogeyman, essentially. I did I did a lot of research into Indigenous um, folklore, if you will, and there's it's, it's I'm amazing. I'm just wondering then, how, how much is there? I mean, you can only touch on one aspect here. Yeah, um, huge, huge. And it, like, it differs in regions and different areas and languages. And, you know, myself, the only Indigenous folklore that I was aware prior to doing this research was the rainbow serpent and that's a fantastic story but there's, well, there's, there's so the much more. Well there's the time sort mm. of that we're familiar with but again this sort of highlights our lack of yeah. knowledge. Yeah. Is there much out there on Indigenous mythology and culture of, of this degree? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, a lot out there, but obviously the nature of this, of this folklore is that it's passed down by word of mouth. So I'm sure there, there's, there's a lot more that we don't have access well, to. Well, incorporating that oral tradition. Yeah. Um, you, you do, of course, make reference to drop bears, which is a sort of, um, a sort of a backpack, an Australian backpacker going yeah. overseas and, and telling that, that story. Yeah. How, that wouldn't be that old, the, the drop oh, bear. Oh, I wonder. I, well, I just, I knew of it already. I mean, that wasn't something I had to research to find, but I'm I'm sure it's probably... We'd tell it to gullible American decades. tourists who come yeah. over here sort of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's more more recent mythology... Definitely. ...than anything else. Mm. Um, 
But basically, uh, this is a self-published book, and sort of we can open this up now to yeah. this notion of mm-hmm. self-publishing. Mm. What got you down that path, and how did you go about it? I was offered two publishing contracts with two separate UK publishing houses, and um, the terms and conditions of those contracts were so horrific. Um, Can you be more specific? How how horrific? Horrific in a sense that I was probably going to make between twenty five to seventy five pence a book mm. and they wanted to retain at least 50% of my subsidiary rights. So for me wanting to eventually take this to, to film or television, I was saying to them, pay me pay me five cents a book, just let me keep all my subsidiary rights. But it, it was a no-go. So I thought, nope, you know what, I'm going to do this on my own. And a lot of authors sort of don't have any option uh, where that's concerned. Um, so... Your path? Yeah, well, I just wanted creative control of the project because I wanted to integrate my art with the book and Mm. I didn't want to be told, I want you to change the story. I knew the story and I wanted, as I said, creative control. And I went through Australian e-book publisher who are in Queensland. I just looked them up online and uh, they're brilliant to work with and um, that's how I did it. Hmm. So, yeah, the need for a creative independence because yeah, publishers totally. control it. I mean, getting illustrations in a book would create all sorts of problems for a mainstream publisher. There's many, many uh, picture storybook people who start off as illustrators and they've got the story and then when they submit the story and the illustrations, the publishing company will say, we'll take the story but we won't take the illustrations, yeah. thanks. So they get somebody completely new in to do the illustrations, which is, you know, a little bit of a... So you can understand. And then you have to share that 25 cents you get with the illustrator. <laughs> so it's, well, the, the life yeah. Of, yeah, the life of an author is uh, very... Difficult. They yeah. they don't make, mm. and yet they're the ones that come up with the idea. Mm. Now the problem, of course, with self published writers is getting the book out. Yeah. So mm. how how have you done it, Rosemary? How well? How have I've you actually done? through Australian ebook publisher. We've I've had reviews on a, a system called NetGalley, which has sort of promoted the book around the world, and I've had reviews from Pennsylvania in America, and I've had a reviewer from Reunion Island who ended up putting me on her web, her blog site, taking images from my website and writing a glowing st- reference about the story. And uh, I've also been taken up by Honest Few, a Canadian online marketing company which promoted the book in Canada. Oh, and, um, and then I'm promoting the book in Australia in hard copy in bookshops in Turak Village and Jefferies mm-hmm. and Malvern. So I'm, I've got a two-strong approach, two approach where I'm having an e-book and hard copy, mm. trying to get it out there to the world. Rebecca, what have you done? Yeah, I mean, I, I've engaged with the publicist, so I thought I knew that if I was going to do this independently, I had to work with the right people to essentially mimic what would happen in an in-house uh, situation Anyway, but I think it's also important to note that first-time authors, even if you're going through a publishing house, 
the likelihood of that publishing house investing a lot of money and publicity in you is slim to none. You will be doing majority of your publicity anyway. They often ask you what your social network is like because they want to tap into that. So whereas their job, the marketing department, is often uh, should be getting out there and finding avenues. Um, But they're they're often, um, you know, bound themselves by um, and limited um, by their own f- focus, yeah. etc., which is, is a worry. Mm. Well, that was I learned a lot there. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. Always do on the program. Well, I spent the first uh, half of the program speaking with Rosemary McIndale about her book, The Turak Jackpot. And I was talking to Rebecca Rosengrave about Gumtree Gargoyles, and we ended up getting onto politicians and blood-sucking <laughs> politicians in Canberra. And, and politicians being goldfish. Uh, yes, you never know where you're going to go with this program. But I hope you're all going to go, all our listeners are going to go and fill out the listener survey. Listener survey, very important, so, uh, as is the Radiothon, which is coming up in June. It's only a short time away. Be prepared for that. And be prepared to listen in next week. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.